You like that, don't you? You're all going to repeat that next week. I know you are. I couldn't help myself. This morning we're going to uh, uh, steer away from our studies through the book of Revelation. I thought that as we are entering the season of celebration, it'd be good to pull away from the tribulation. So uh, that's a good thing. But uh, we've always, as a family, loved, uh, even my brother and myself, I have one brother, uh, raised in a Christian home, absolutely blessed uh, by that. And our, our parents, my mom and dad, Fred and Linda Cook, uh, went to every extent that they could to make uh, their boys <clears throat> aware that it was a special time of the year. Uh, I can remember the early days when all of the, um, just the stuff that is fun, but it doesn't matter. The, the, the decorations and all of that stuff. Uh, well, as a little kid, it, I was enamored by that, by the lights, by the presents. I remember my dad, uh, he played Santa Claus for this and Santa Claus for that. And it was all about a way of drawing people together and creating a festive environment. And whenever we, we, we did that, there was always Jesus. The focus turned to Jesus. He did that in our neighborhood. He would stand out in front and cars would line up and he would hand out. It was just always a way to capture people's attention. And if you knew my dad, he loved to pray with you. He loved to get to the topic of Jesus and I think that is important. I don't want to demonize all the other stuff, but I want to prioritize the main stuff. And that's the main thing, is to keep the main thing the main thing, amen, even in this season. So uh, next week we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but we're going to talk about the true light of Christmas. And um, this morning I wanted to look at a glimpse of Christmas through the Old Testament. And so... Uh, we're going to go through a lot of scriptures. There's a, there's a whole lot of, a lot of scriptures that we've got to get through. And um, they captivate us with the mystery and the, uh, the wonder, really, of this Christmas message. I love what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And he's like, hey, and without controversy, there's a lot of controversial things in the world we live in. But when it comes to this message... And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What is that? Well, mystery is something that was hidden and is now revealed. Well, that is God was manifest in the flesh. Speaking of the birth of Jesus. Justified in the spirit. Speaking of, of like the anointing of God upon that. Seen by angels. It just begins to talk about from the beginning of his existence. And just the observation of heaven, if you will, upon his life and mission and ministry. And believed or uh, preached among the Gentiles, speaking about like the message of his followers to the world and, 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 and him himself. And then believed on in the world and received up to glory. And so the... Revelation in the Old Testament of this amazing event, um, Christmas, the birth of the Messiah, is again what we want to um, focus on. The Old Testament is filled with promises, filled with prophecies and types and pictures. Um, in the 1800s, there was a, 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 a Jewish scholar. He was converted. He began to follow Jesus, and he was just like captivated with Jesus in the Old Testament, but his name was Alfred Edersheim. 
And he just made a life study on how many scriptures can I find in the Old Testament that point to the Messiah. And he found in his research and wrote a book on them, 456 scriptures that point to the Messiah. And he's like, look, we could just conservatively pick out 300 of them and see them fulfilled in Jesus' birth, life, and ministry alone. And so for centuries, the Jews, as they're reading their, their scriptures, the, the Old Testament, um, they, they, they look up in hope for their Messiah because their scriptures are filled with promises and pictures and types of their coming Messiah. And so our journey begins as we see a glimpse of Christmas in the Old Testament clear back to 4000 B.C. And there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the Proto-Evangelo. And the Proto-Evangel, I should say, is the first mention of salvation in Scripture. It's the first gospel message in Scripture. And there, God speaking to Satan... After the fall in Genesis 3.15, he's like, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his hill. It's a prediction of the coming Savior, the Messiah. The, the, the seed of a woman, which we know to be and believe to be Jesus, defeating the seed of the serpent, which is Satan, thus bringing salvation to a lost world. We know that a woman does not have a seed. We know that a woman, of course, has an egg that is fertilized by man's seed. So no literal seed would be produced. God's promise was referring to something spiritual, something supernatural, something that he alone could provide. He was talking about the way that his son, the Messiah, would come into the world by way of a virgin birth. We look to the New Testament, and we see Paul talking about this in Galatians 4, 4, and 5. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's clear. Born under the law, a Jewish woman, to redeem those, the purpose, who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Another scripture, a snapshot, a glimpse of this amazing birth in the Old Testament is 2090 B.C., again, where we move forward into the day and the time of Abraham. And we're familiar with this passage, Genesis 12, 3, where God says, Listen, Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And in you, in you, all of the families will of the earth will be blessed. And that, of course, was a promise of what would come from the family and then from the eventual line, the nation of Israel. And so when we, we go through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, it says, you know, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It ties him back all the way to this very promise, this glimpse of Christmas in the Old Testament. Later on in Genesis 49, verse 10, we have another prophecy concerning the coming Messiah where God said to Jacob, while he was in Egypt, the scepter 
shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh. And you see that word capitalized, not so much to state a city or a place, but a person. Until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Again, speaking of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. A, a picture, a glimpse again of Christmas. A little bit later on in 1410 B.C. In the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, we have the story of Balaam there. Fascinating story. But out of the mouth of this prophet Balaam, who sometimes spoke good things and sometimes not so good things, came this amazing prophecy where it says, and I quote, I, I, I see him, but now I behold him, but not near. A star, a star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise, and the scepter here, speaking of the Messiah, shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all of the sons of tumult. And it's quite likely that the wise men were aware of this passage. Those wise men who followed the star, those wise men who in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, were speaking to Herod, and when they, they came there, they said, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we have we, we, we've seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Herod hearing that, it's speculative at best if Herod would have known about Jesus and this coming king for the Jews if it weren't for these guys at this particular time the three wise men coming and informing him of that. But either way, whether he knew or he did not know, it, it seemed to kick off another prophecy in the Old Testament, the response of Herod. In Matthew 2, 3 through 15, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered the, all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he inquired of them. He's like, give me the, the leadership of the Jewish faith. Where is the Christ to be born? It says in verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophets. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And of course, that is a reference towards the Messiah, towards Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But it's a prophecy that was written by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And it says in verse 7, when Herod heard, um, he, 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 then, he then secretly called the wise men together and determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I might come and worship him. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and it stood over the, where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. And when they had come to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, the mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They opened all their treasures and gave the, the gifts, and we know what they are, gold and frankincense and, and myrrh. Then it says, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And then we have this 
interesting passage of Joseph and Mary and their flight to Egypt with their baby boy. They're like, hey, th we can't be sticking around town much longer. Herod is on a rampage to kill these young ones. So when they had departed, follow this, like the series of prophecies that are all tied together and kicked off by these three wise men just even coming and having a conversation with Herod. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, to Joseph in a dream, saying, yeah, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Oh. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. A string of prophecies. A glimpse of Christmas. I was reading a humorous little joke that was sent to me about these three wise men. I like to laugh sometimes, and this one got me. But it said, what do you think would have happened if these three wise men were three wise women? That got my attention. I have three daughters. Number one, they said they would have been there on time before the birth because they would have asked for directions along the way. So they would have arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby. They would have cleaned the stable. They would have offered up a casserole. They would have lined up a week worth of meals to be dropped off. And they would have handed them a prescription for a year for diapers. I like that. Amen, ladies? But these, these prophecies, amazing. This picture of Christmas in the Old Testament. In 1407 B.C., Deuteronomy 18.15, spoken by Moses while he was on the east bank of the Jordan. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. You know, following the, the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John's gospel with the five loaves and the two fish, the disciples were just blown away by that, but then they gathered up souvenirs, 12 baskets each. They each had a basket, like a reminder of what miracle they just saw and who he was, validating his claims to be God. And, 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 and it says there, that they sat amongst themselves holding those baskets in John 6, 14. Truly, or this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They would have witnessed that. And they would have tied this. Oh, he's the one that all of the prophets spoke about. Even Moses there on the east banks of the Jordan, as God said, one day, one like you will come. One day Peter was preaching next to the temple and, you know, him and John were going there to pray and there was the layman that was there and, and he was begging for alms and they said, silver and gold, we don't have any of that, but what we do have is, 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 is better than that. And they basically were like, you know, rise up. They had faith. They, there was this connection. And this guy was like instantly healed. And, and, <coughs> and it was this you know, great miracle that had, had happened. After that, or before that, Peter was preaching next to the temple. And his audience just witnessed all of that. 
And he says, listen, this happened, this miracle happened by our simply praying and putting faith in Jesus. We prayed in his name. And then he called all of these people who were like tripping out that this guy who's always been lame is no longer lame. And he's standing up as a witness that something supernatural had happened. They're trying to give Peter and John the credit. Like, No, no, this is Jesus. And he uses that opportunity to call them to repent of their sins, that their sins would be removed, that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. Then he says this in Acts 3, 22 through 26. For Moses truly said to your fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. He referred back to that. Him you shall hear in all things. You know, whatever he says. And he goes on to talk about how, uh, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall utterly be destroyed from the people. And yes, all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have spoken have also foretold of these days. And that early church, they knew their word. Those early church leaders knew the word and they were able to tie these amazing prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus as they, they witnessed him. They were, they were bold in confessing and like connecting those, those promises, those prophecies, those types, those pictures to the audience of their day. Another classic scripture in the Old Testament, again, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read this a lot. Around 1000 BC, God was speaking to David, and he says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, one who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. By the way, those are the last recorded words that we have in Scripture of God speaking to David. And the very powerful words that to David, when he heard them, they were very powerful words that the first part of that, well, it applied to him. The earthly kingdom in which he was then the reigning king. It was a promise that one of his sons would be his successor. And that Successor, of course, would be Solomon, but that son would also be used to build a house for God, the temple of God, which, of course, did happen. But then in verse 13, the focus turns to a kingdom that would be established forever. Yeah, that's different. This is not just talking about, you know, David's kingdom or Solomon's kingdom or their reign or their throne that would even last through Solomon's life. This is talking about a future kingdom that would come from their line. It's a prophecy that God is going to produce a king through David's line, a king that will come, a king that will reign, but he'll be unlike any other earthly king because the, the, the reign of this king will never end. His kingdom is without end. David's not reigning anymore. Solomon's not reigning anymore. All of the kings we read about in the Old Testament are not reigning anymore. There's only one king who came, continues to reign, and will reign forevermore, and his name is Jesus. Kings come and go, people. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Governments rise and governments go. 
We're learning a lot about that in the uh, studies through the book of Revelation. Empires rise and empires fall. Presidents rise and presidents go. Only one king and one kingdom reigns over all and forever, past, present, and future, and on into eternity. And again, this is another glimpse of Christmas in the Old Testament. And this takes us to that place and time when this king arrived on the scene. Because Jesus was born that king. Ten centuries following the final words that God had to speak with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, an angel by the name of Gabriel is sent by God to a specific place, to Nazareth, to speak to a specific young girl by the name of Mary, who was betrothed to a very specific young man, a Jewish young man, by the name of Joseph. Part of what Gabriel wanted her to know was that she was going to to give birth to this king, whose kingdom would never end. <laughs> After greeting her, Gabriel said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 30, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive, and in your womb you'll bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He's going to be great. He'll be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. I just see the Father in heaven like, all right, it's time to connect the dots. There she is. Yeah, she's a young teenager, but it's time. The plan of redemption that the Father put in motion before the foundations of the earth were even created. This plan of redemption that had you in mind, had me in mind, every sinner in mind. The father would say, Gabriel, this one's for you. This is a really important one. Go. And I want you to connect the dots. You're going to have to deliver the news, but you're going to have to give some sort of perspective to help this young girl understand what you're talking about. I want you to tie it in. Connect the dots. Point it back to my word. And he did. Following the birth of Jesus, at the end of Matthew, it says, in Matthew 2, 1 and through 2, after, the, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where's the king? We talked about that earlier. Who was born of the Jews. And so, what, what was going on with Mary once she heard that she was going to be giving birth to this king that the Old Testament talks about, that the, 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 the reign of the Messiah would never end, that he would be a king in that sense. He will, he will govern everyone and everything. What was going on through her mind through, through the term of holding for those nine months after hearing that? What was going on in her mind once she gave birth and these guys came and, and did they have that like, yeah, man, we've been, you know, looking for direction because we heard about this star and then we began to follow this star and it stopped right here. And everything we know to be true about and have heard about this young baby being born here 
is that he will be that king. That must have blown her mind. His father declared Jesus as the promised king. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, but to the son Jesus, the father, his father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus knew that he was that promised king. In his trial before for Pilate, in John chapter 18, they they entered the praetorium in order for Jesus to be interrogated by Pilate. And Pilate's like, the first question is, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him and said, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did you know, others tell you these things about myself? He said, like, I, 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 I am a Jew. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. You know, what have you done? Question. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And he's like, well, then are you a king? Come on, let me know. Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. I preached that very sermon following an election, a pres our last presidential election, where I saw everyone I know, Christian and non-Christian alike, all talking about their cause. And I'm not saying they're not worthy causes. But we better be men and women that are most about his cause. Amen? And everything we do in our cause better be a reflection of the greater cause, the cause of Christ. And what does that mean? His cause was the kingdom. He was the king in advancing the kingdom of God, helping people understand who he was, accept him and follow him. The moment they do, he's enthroned on their heart. They're part of the kingdom. Amen? And that's what it's about. That sign that was affixed to the cross said what? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. When he returns, we'll get there pretty soon on Sunday mornings, Revelation 19. When he, when he comes in the second coming there, uh, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation has eight references to Jesus living or reigning forever as that king. Then around 690 B.C., we have another glimpse of Christmas in the Old Testament, a more popular one as well this time of the year. Isaiah 7, 14, a prophecy. Therefore, the Lord himself will give a sign. Behold, the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This promise was given at a very challenging time for the nation of Israel. They were divided into the two kingdoms, the north and the south. This promise was given to, to, to those living in Jerusalem, the, the ten tribes, and those people were more hunkered down around Jerusalem, and they were feeling fearful, and they were feeling threatened because Syria had joined forces with the other two kings of the southern kingdom. At that time when citizens and their king, King Ahaz, were gripped with fear. <laughs> Man, the world's looking bleak. 
Can anybody say amen to that today? It was at that time in that kind of setting which we could all re relate to, God gave this promise. A sign really to the whole world of his intention regarding a rescue mission. What was the sign? What should we look for? What does it point to? Well, behold, a virgin shall conceive. And that takes us back to what we read about in Genesis chapter 3.14 or 3.15, the, the proto-evangel, the first mention of the gospel in the scriptures. Again, where God said to the enemy after the fall, Satan after the fall, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Speaking of the virgin birth again. Well, what did we look for? Well, that virgin will conceive. And she'll bear a son. <laughs> and, 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 and you shall call his name Emmanuel. His name will be called Emmanuel. This ties us back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where we have another glimpse of Christmas in the Old Testament, where it says, For unto us a child is born. Capitalized C. Unto us a son is given. Capitalized S. The child is born. That's speaking of his humanity. The son will be given. Speaking of his deity. It's speaking of, of the incarnation. It tells us that the Messiah will be physically born into the world. That he will be physically born to a nation. Israel unto us. Isaiah says, as one of the covenant people. He is not coming into the world as an angel. He's not coming into the world as a grown man. He's not coming into the world as some great political leader that everyone's going to parade around and whatnot in the sense of throwing parades. He's going to come through a birth canal <laughs> by way of a supernatural conception. He will be fully human, for unto us his child is born. He will be fully God, for unto us his son is given. And, 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 and he will be called Emmanuel. You break that word down in the Hebrew, and it means God with us. This was and is the very son of God. When Jesus took on flesh, he was fully man and fully God at the same time. Again, remember what was prophesied through David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with the fathers, I'm going I'm to, from your line, from your seed. And he would say in verse 14, following that he will build the house and establish the throne of this kingdom forever, and I will be his father, God saying to David, and he shall be my son. Proverbs 34, who has ascended into heaven or descended, who has gathered the wind from the fist, who has bound the waters in a garment, who has established all of the ends of the earth. And what is his name? And what is his son's name? I love that passage. That messianic psalm, a psalm that talks about the coming Messiah. Psalm 2, 7 and 8, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, but we see Jesus 
who was made a little lower than the angels, speaking of his incarnation, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. In other words, God who is spirit had to take on flesh in order to die, in order to experience death. And the purpose of his death was to deal with and forgive us of our sins, providing salvation and providing eternal life, victory over death. Amen? Amen. As God, he, he could not die. He had to take on flesh. Our salvation required the incarnation of a Savior. Colossians 1, 21 through 22, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Philippians 2, 6 through 11, speaking of Jesus, who being in the form of God, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was God, but he made himself of no reputation. How do you do that? Taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It is so important that we see Jesus as far more than just a baby in a manger. Amen? It's far more than we see him as more than how some people have concluded he's just a good man or a good, or a good prophet or a great rabbi but they have a hard time accepting he's God. If Jesus refused to claim to be God when he walked on the earth, we would still be looking for a Messiah. But that is not the case. In John chapter 8, 58 through 59, Jesus said to the religious leaders, most assuredly I say to you before Abraham, I was. And that phrase was a word that they heard, oh, he's speaking of, well, he's claiming to be God. That's why they took up stones to throw at him because they knew he was speaking, you know, that he was claiming to be God. But Jesus had hid himself and went into the temple and just kind of passed through them. In John 10, 24, Jesus, there at the temple, the Jews surrounded him and said, how long are you going to keep us in doubt if you are the Messiah? If you are the Christ, just plainly tell us. Jesus said, I told you, you guys don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name they bear witness of me, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. You're not my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now, when he said that, that's something only God can do, and they knew that. And then he said, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And then he goes, I and my Father are one. One in essence, one in nature. And then it says, the Jews took up stones to throw against him. And Jesus said, many good works have I shown you from my father. For which one of these works do you guys want to stone me? And they said, no, no, no. For a good work, we don't want to stone you. But for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, just a man, you make yourself God. You're, you're claiming to be God. John 14, 9, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it'll, it'll be sufficient for us. And Jesus is like, man, have, have I been with you so long yet you have not known me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. In Christ, the invisible God is made visible. John wrote about many miracles, several miracles in his gospel that Jesus did. Things that only God can do. And in the latter part, John 20, 30 through 31, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these that I've written, all of these things, these, these events and accounts of, of the miraculous, Jesus doing what only God can do. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life, zoe, spiritual life and eternal life in his name. Jesus asked Peter there up in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 6, 15, who do you say that I am? You guys know that people are running around saying, oh, some are saying Elijah, some are saying John the Baptist. Who do you say that I am? And he got it right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Speaking of, 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 of Jesus in John Chapter 1, verse 14, will be there next week. But it says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And then in 1 John 4, 9, By this the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. So, all through the Old Testament, we can just connect it with the fulfillment that we see in the scriptures of the New Testament. Genesis 49.10 tells us the son will one day be able to trace his roots through the tribe of Judah. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he will come from the family line of David. We can go through the genealogies. Both Mary and David belong to the line uh, of, of David and such. In Luke 1 we have the account. We're given the time. When did this happen? In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it, it says that, that, that this happened in the days of Herod, king of Judah. Speaking of Herod the Great, we know that Herod the Great was on the scene from about 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. The same Herod that ordered the execution of all of the, the, the male children who were two years old old and under in the vicinity of Abraham. And we know that account. As you go through it in the latter part in verse 30, where the angel comes to Mary and is like, don't be afraid, you found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus. And he'll be great. And will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Just think of the Old Testament scriptures we're, we're thinking of now as we read that account. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary's like, well, how can this be? A 14-year-old would say that for sure. I'm not, I, don't, I don't know a man. I'm a virgin. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. 
So it happened. The first person of the Godhead, God the Father, has provided a way for the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, to be born into the world. And this would happen through the assistance of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. It's God's doing. It's only something God could do. All other conceptions involved an egg of a woman and the fertilized seed of a man. But that is not the case with this conception. Joseph is not the father. When it comes to fertilizing the egg, he's completely out of the equation. As Luke said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. And so the, the, the conception there leading to the birth there, it's all about the Holy Spirit working within Mary's body, the immaterial, the spirit and the material, Mary's womb, were both involved. And so in a great miracle, a great miracle of creation, Jesus was placed in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And both Matthew and Luke give us the account of Jesus' birth. Born of a virgin, just as the prophets had said. Born in Bethlehem, just as Micah, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 had said. From the line of David, just as we read. He was to be Emmanuel, just as the prophets said. The king with an everlasting kingdom would come. And from that time he would rule and reign, he would always be. He will never end. His rule will never end. His kingdom will never end. Right now we're seeing the spiritual part of that kingdom. One day we'll see the establishment of the literal part of that kingdom. And it will never end. Listen, as prophesied by the prophets. He will be called out of Egypt, as Hosea said in Hosea chapter 11. And he was, as the angel came and warmed Joseph in a dream, led out of Egypt. Following the summary of Jesus' birth, it says in chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 22, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, then Matthew quotes the prophecy there in Isaiah chapter 7. Behold the virgin. It's like, let me just tie it all together. Once you're sitting down and just wonder of the birth of Jesus. Oh yeah, it's just as the prophet had said. The virgin would be with child and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Because he is God with us. So we have the sign. We have all of these Old Testament passages pointing to this one individual. And he was born. The king has come. He's worthy of our praise and he's worthy of our worship. Amen? Amen. He's worthy of our life, giving our life to him. And uh, I've got more, but we'll finish. We'll, we'll just continue this conversation next week as we focus just a little bit more on on the light, God being light. Let's, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we, um, we thank you for the, the amazing fulfillment of Scripture before our eyes.
that you are, that you did. We thank you for um, the credibility that this brings to you, God, and that we have this unique book separate than any other book, our Bible, any other religious literature. And the one thing that sets it far above and far apart from any other religious book is, 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 are these prophecies. That, that you alone are the God that can say the future long before it happens with great accuracy. And with such confidence that you'll have it pinned down long before it happens. And so then, when it happens, not only are we the beneficiaries of that promise, but we stand in awe and go, wow, our God is the one true living God, the God who lives outside of time. And I would just simply ask as we lean into this um, season, um, it is a time where, where so much pulls at us. Some uh, enter the holiday season, the Christmas season in particular, with heavy hearts. It's a difficult time for them. And we pray that, that they would find you as their peace and as their hope, that you would be the one that stabilizes their soul. That they would just work through their, the challenge, whatever that is, Lord. And they would find you and just, just rest in you and celebrate you in these, in t today and in these coming days. And for uh, any here, Lord, or online that have never um, accepted you personally as their Lord and Savior, I would like to just pray a very simple prayer and, and lead them in that prayer. And Father, I pray you would see the sincerity of their heart, the surrender of their soul right now. And you'd just be like so blessed to save them. And if you're here or you're online and you've never um, asked Jesus into your life, a lot of people, they're not sure exactly how to pray or, or what to pray, but they are aware, as the Bible says, that they are a sinner. And they are aware that they are in need of a Savior. And that might be you. And the Bible says, it's, confession is a really cool thing, that, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness there in 1 John. And, and, and confessing is like agreeing with God. And all through God's word, it's very clear that every human being born into this world from Adam and Eve forward, that we're born sinners with a sinful nature. And our sin separates us from God. In Romans 3.23, it says we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. But here it is, setting up a prayer. <laughs> Romans 6.23, there's a wage to sin. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. The wages of sin and death. But the gift of God, which is Jesus, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Think about that. <laughs> this plan of God saving us does not involve our saving ourselves. It's his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So if you would like to receive the gift of Jesus this morning,
and agree with God that you are a sinner in need of salvation. Would you say that to him right now? Just say, Father, I, I confess to you now. Just pray this to him, but to him, mean it to him. I confess to you right now that I am a sinner. I am in need of salvation. And I agree with you. I agree with your word and everything that it says about your son, that he is God, that he took on flesh in order to die on that cross for me. And now I want you to talk to Jesus. Just tell him, say, Jesus, I, I, I realize now who you are. And I want you to be not just the Savior of the world, but I want you to be my Savior. And invite him into your life to be such. Say, Jesus, come into my life. I invite you. I open my life, and I invite you into my life right now. Forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your love, love for you, love for your word, love for the body of Christ, love for the lost world. And if you've, you've prayed that prayer right now, you've prayed it to him, you've meant that in your way, I just want you to thank him. Thank him for saving you. And Lord, we, we gather for so many reasons. But as Chad was saying earlier, our, 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 our focus, really, we want it to be on you. And, and yeah, when we're worshiping you together, and yeah, we're wearing the word together, it's all, all aimed at you, we could focus on you. I pray that that discipline... And the results of that, just being focused on you, that, like we would just continue that. I pray that for myself. So much pulling at myself and our families. And at this time of year, just help us to remain focused on you. Thank you for the work you've done in our hearts, believer. And I would even pray those that have given their life to you this morning here online. Thank you for that work. You're such a faithful God. And we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.